G'day, mate. Welcome along to episode 81 of the Exponential Performance Podcast. So good to have you here listening. Today, we're going to do things slightly different rather than our usual uh, chat between me and Nick. Uh, Nick's going to have a chat to me specifically around uh, uh, an ultra-endurance bike event that I did earlier this year, the Great Southern Brevet. So, Nick, I'll pass it over to you, and you can bloody grill me with whatever questions you you, you want to talk about. Sounds good. Um, I guess uh, to sort of start it off, we're, we're going to start calling the Great Southern Brevet the GSB for the point of this conversation to make it a lot easier. Um, but we might as well start as to, to what what is the GSB? Uh, Matty, tell us what it is. Yeah, the, the GSB or the Great Southern Brevet, I mean, like the word Brevet is kind of a weird thing anyway. Not many people know what it's called. I When I first started doing these rides, I thought it was pronounced Brevet or Brevet. Um, but apparently Brevet is a uh, French word. And I'm not exactly sure what it means, but from my experience, it means like a really long, hard bike ride uh, that completely kicks your ass. And that's that's all I really know of the word. But the Great Southern Brevet is... Uh, 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 an organised ride, so it's not officially a race. It's um, an organised ride where people get together, uh, and it's 1,100 kilometres in length, and you do that uh, self-supported. So there's no support crews. Uh, you have to take all of the gear that you want to take. You can stop along the way and buy food and drink and that sort of thing, resupplies. But over that 1,100 kilometres, you just cover it as fast as you want to or you're able to, essentially. Um, you have to take four hours of downtime or stopping time, sleep time, every 24 hours. So the most you can ride your bike is uh, for 20 hours each day. So it's kind of what the Americans call bike packing. In New Zealand, we call them brevets um, for, for whatever reason, but it's a, it's a bike packing event. Um, so to speak. So the Great Southern Brevet starts in Tekapo, finishes in Tekapo, does a big loop, 1,100 kilometres. There's about 14,000 metres of vertical climbing in it. And, um, yeah, in a nutshell, that's what it is. That's always always 1,100 k's, give or take? Yeah, this this uh, GSB, this, this specific one is around about that 1,100 k mark. So the organiser always sort of organises it around and plans the route to be around that mark. And there's about three or four different routes that sort of do a very similar lap of this lower South Island, always starting and finishing in Tekapo. And I'm not exactly sure how he does it, but he always gets it pretty much bang on that 1100k mark. And the, the loops are, are quite similar in some respects but completely different in, in others in terms of the mountain passes you go over, all the valleys that you end hit, you know, end up going up and that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of country in the, the lower South Island there uh, where those laps are, so I can imagine it's quite easy to, to navigate to a different gravel road to go over something. So, like, so much country. Like, I always thought that I'd kind of seen, you know, a little bit of the South Island that... If we were going riding somewhere, that it probably wouldn't be somewhere that was completely new to me. Like 90% of the courses, you know, usually like completely new. And sometimes, you know, you go places that you'd never think to go uh, and that you'd never want to go again with a bike because <laughs> it's completely impractical pushing your bike up, you know, the side of this mountain for four hours and then, then riding down the other side. But that's kind of the beauty of it as well. Yeah. 
cool. So essentially, we've got a multi-day or a multi yeah, multi-day twenty hours a day maximum um, bike packing event. Um, Eleven hundred k's, fourteen hundred meters. Uh, yeah, fourteen thousand meters of climbing. Yep. Um, is there minimum gear that you have to take with you? No, no, there's not. So there's no gear list, and that's one of the things I love about these events is that. Often, if you if you sign up for any other um, mountain bike event or multi sport race, whatever it might be, you you're getting a minimum gear list or a, what you have to carry, uh, and these are often just you know over a hundred k's or, or so. But and often there's people checking this gear off to make sure you've got it right because it's this whole health and safety thing. With the GSB uh, and all all bike packing events in New Zealand actually. There, there's none of that. So absolutely zero minimum gear requirements. So you can take or not take whatever you want. So it comes back to that self-responsibility or, uh, you know, taking taking the risks or, or planning planning around uh, yourself. And I really like that self-sufficiency approach or that self-responsibility approach. If you don't want to take a rain jacket, you don't have to. But when you've been out in the rain for 30 hours and, and you're freezing cold, you, you, you kind of got to take a rain jacket, you know. So it, it's kind of a little bit self-governing in that respect that the people that usually line up for these events uh, have that experience to some degree, have that kind of a, the, the outdoors people, you know. You're not getting some uh, complete amateur lining up and not knowing what to bring. So people will normally take more gear then is potentially required because they're a little bit worried about what might happen. So there's that bit, a little bit conservative in terms of overpacking. And then there's the guys and the girls up the front of the, the, the events that are, are trying to push the pace to really challenge themselves, and they'll be the ones that don't take as much gear. So they're really pushing the limits of their own comfort uh, or discomfort, as, as it turns out, uh, about what they do take. So, no, there's no minimum gear requirements. You don't have to take anything. You probably didn't even, wouldn't even have to show up with a bike if you didn't want to, but it's probably the, the the better way of doing it. Yeah. And is there a time cutoff? Like, do you have a certain period of time, or can you just complete it whenever you want to, or over starting from the, the right start time? That's yeah, so I mean, no, like the, the rules are pretty loose, right? So one of the key rules is just do it all under your own steam. And if you go off course, come back onto the course where you left, like if you need to go to a town and come back, and no outside assistance. And apart from those rules, you pretty much do what you want. So the course, I guess, is officially open for seven days. So you've got seven days to make your, maybe eight, I'm not 100% sure on that. So you've got time to make your way through the course at whatever speed you want to um, over that time. But if you get to the, if you're not at the end, at the end of that seven days, you're not going to be like penalized or disqualified because it's not officially, it's not officially anything. Uh, it's just people turn up, do the ride uh, and, and under their, you know, own steam and then finish. And I guess likewise at the other end of going as fast as you can, you get to the finish line well, there's not really any finish line. We just arrive at the Church of the Good Shepherd in Tekapo there, and, and that's the start and the finish point. You arrive there, and there's no finish line. There's no m- medal for 
finishing or you know getting there's no prize money there's no entry fee for these things so it's all just about uh turning up and and going and having an adventure essentially yeah so you really have to be able to ride 150 k's a day sort of minimum don't you for that kind of to, to get in your your seven-ish days at 1100 k's yeah absolutely so around that around that mark for sure yeah. Uh, and you kind of you kind of look at 150 k's. You're like, well, that's not actually that much to write. But 150 k on the GSB course is proper. Like you're looking at that 14,000 meters of climbing. Mm. And to put that in perspective, I like it's 14 kilometers <laughs> of going up, which is a huge amount. It's like twice the height of Mount Everest, approximately, uh, and really rough as well. Like we'll get into some of the specifics around the course, but oh man, it is so rough out there. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's not just 150 k's of of road riding at 30 k's an hour, um, which sounds quite easy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's 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 rough. <laughs> it's real rough. So I guess given that, then so you've got you know this 20 hours a day to ride your bike. Um, how, how do you prepare for it? Um, because I know you tend to, to push these things at that slightly pointier end and try and do them as, as fast as you can. Um, how do you prepare yourself for it? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, I guess my goal going into them is to, is to go as fast as I can. I mean, that's, that's the, that's why I line up is for that challenge of, of pushing myself. Um, and yeah, how do I train for them? And it's, it's not actually overly, complicated and how i how i train for these the the biggest thing is having a good aerobic base first and foremost and and spending some time on your bike and a lot of people will look at these and think right i've got to ride for approximately a you know 100 i think i took about 95 hours so i'm gonna ride for 100 hours say how am i going to prepare myself for that it must be like lots and lots of long riding and that would probably prepare you for it, but you'd, you'd probably end up at the event pretty burnt out and, and tired from just doing lots of aerobic mileage. And I don't really have the time to do lots of aerobic mileage uh, just with work and family and, and the rest of it and not really wanting to spend my whole life on my bike either, which is the other side of it. And so you, I think this year uh, I kind of had about eight, eight weeks where I was pretty focused on my training. And, and sort of put in a, a good block. Uh, I came out of winter were having cross-country skied, and so I hadn't ridden my bike. Now, I didn't ride my bike until September, and so this the, the event's in January, so that sort of gives you a little bit of the timeline that I was working with. So I came out of winter, hadn't ridden my bike at all, and that's often how I'll do it uh, now, is sort of go seasonal with my, uh, with my training, just so it keeps it super fresh and exciting, uh, and I, I really like doing uh, other stuff in the winter as well. So I came out of cross-country skiing, no biking base, but a pretty good aerobic base just in general, and then sort of started to build back into my riding after that. And a lot of my ride time during uh, that sort of spring, early summer was just commuting to and from uh, the snow sport or the high-performance gym that I work in, in at Wanaka. Uh, and that there is about a... a about 20k sort of door to door so about a 45 minute ride depending on the day and so I'd, I'd ride there and back three or four times a week and then sort of get in something on on the weekend as well i like to do a lot of my training in the mornings when uh my, my when my family's still sleeping especially on the weekend so i don't sort of take up the whole day out riding my bike and so 
I my longest ride would have been, I think it was around four hours. So I hadn't really ridden anything more than four hours leading into the Great Southern Brevet, apart from uh, another brevet that I did in, I think it was in October or November, one of the Flayut, uh the Odyssey, which was 340 or 320 Ks or something like that in Alexandra. So I used that as kind of like a really big head out. So I went and rode that, and I think it took me about 13 hours, uh, just one off ride. And so that was my longest ride, was just a one-off 13-hour ride. Uh, and then after that, a bit of recovery to bounce back. And then building through sort of Christmas over the New Year period, that's when I sort of started to put in some a little bit more focused training in terms of the intensity, putting in some uh, some intervals and some hill climbing stuff just to sort of sharpen up my, my top end. Um, and I, I knew going into it that there were some guys that had some pretty big engines and that, you know, they were going to be pushing pushing the pace a little bit. And I I knew that I wasn't, I, I, my fitness wasn't quite there in that, that upper end, but I knew I had a good aerobic base. So I was just going to have to um, manage that. Over Christmas, we went away to Nelson on a bit of a road trip in the caravan and didn't get as much riding in as I would like. So I was just, again, prioritizing good quality, shorter, harder sessions over, over long ones. Um, but if you think about your traditional periodization pyramid, big base, sort of high top end, I always think with these bike packing brevet type events, you could probably chop half of that pyramid off and still perform pretty well as long as you've got that solid base. The, the, the upper high intensity end is not as important. Uh, one, if you just if you're just aiming to get through it, if you're thinking of pushing the pace at the pointy end, it becomes a lot more important. But I sort of over the years have sort of found that I, I kind of like walking the line about what's the minimum amount of training I can do, what's the minimum effective dose of training that'll get me through whatever I've got coming up, so that. You know, you're not doing more than you need to. You're not, you know, spending additional time. And because it's not a super competitive uh, race, uh, it's uh, you can sort of walk that line a little bit more. Yeah, I, mean, I guess with the, the, you know, you're going into a, a 20 hour a day for four days or however many days it would be to, to take you. Um, you're not wanting to be overcooked. Um, you know, oh, a, yeah. a lot of athletes go into a an Ironman or a long-distance multi-sport race, and they are they're just right on that cusp of being overdone. Um, but I guess as you're tapering off your, your loaded or your volume training, getting a little bit more sort of specific and sharper about it, you're actually starting to freshen up from a, a tired sort of point of view as well as sharpening up your fitness. Yeah, uh, absolutely. A, a, big, a big key for them instead of doing these big, long 10, 15, 15-hour rides, which... Are probably not that practical for anyone, um, and just wear you out. Oh, I mean that, that's the number one thing that I want to be. Uh, you know, at the start of one of these is is fresh, because if you're not fresh, it's not going to get any better for you. Like it's no. only downhill in terms of your fatigue and freshness from there, and like like really downhill. <laughs> you're going to be the most fatigued and, and ruined you've ever been in your life. So you want to start from a pretty good place. Absolutely. So I guess in, <clears throat> moving on from, from the training side of things, and we, we talked a little bit about this, no, no minimum gear, 
But mm. what gear do you do you personally carry? Like, what what are your must-haves on your bike? Yeah, so I've done a couple of video. Well, every every time I do one of these uh, bike packing events, I do a bit of a gear video of what I took, sort of unpack my bike so people can see. And it changes all the time, like from ride to ride, it'll it'll change. And for example, like I'll have a a bag on the back of my bike where I put my sleeping stuff usually. Um, for the for the GSB, I try not to have a front roll under my handlebars. Like a lot of people will have their sleeping system on their handlebars. And I, after the first time I did it, I decided not to have uh, a handlebar roll anymore because there's so much climbing in, in the GSB and it's so rough. Uh, I wanted my suspension to be able to work, you know, fully through the full range on a lot of the rough downhills and that sort of thing. And when you have that front roll there, there's uh, you've just got a heavy front end and it's, and it's clangy and it's just not as not as smooth so i always for the great southern brevet at least i do away with the front roll because um i i just think of it a lighter a slightly lighter bike here you're lifting it over like three million fences and gates throughout the ride as well so the lighter it can be the better so i actually carry a backpack which is a little different to what a lot of people do a lot of bike packers will just want all of the gear on their bike no backpack and depending on what the event is uh, I'll, I'll go for all my gear on the bike for some events. But for the GSB, I, I like a little bit of a backpack just so that you take some of the weight off your bike because you're lifting it and carrying it and pushing it so often. This year, I carried a sleeping bag. Um, for the past two GSBs, I haven't taken a sleeping bag. I've just taken like a little bivy bag uh, and a down jacket and some other clothes that I'd sort of get into. But for those two, I've, I've been so cold. <laughs> like ridiculously cold uh, at nights. And so this year I took a sleeping bag and a bivy bag, which made a huge difference to um, just comfort at night and, and getting a good sleep and being warm, uh, which was really nice. Uh, and the weather looked uh, pretty good as well. So like even just the warmer temperatures in general, I probably could have got by on just a bivy bag, um, but I've still got sort of PTSD from sleeping in my bivy bag uh, in the wet cold conditions and just being absolutely frozen for three or four nights so sleeping bag uh like a lightweight down jacket's always key i take a little bit of repair gear so a couple of inner tubes multi-tool quick links for your chain and other than that it's mostly just food food and water so it's pretty minimal gear like i'll get into wherever i'm stopping for the night and take off all my clothes, wrap them up in my rain jacket, uh, and put that down underneath my feet. And so you get this like nice little stinking parcel of rotting clothes that you put on every morning. But it keeps them warm. That's why I put them in the in the jacket, and um, and keeps all the bugs off them. There's some hilarious stories of people hanging up their their clothes at night, and then they get up in the morning, maybe on a tree or a post or something. Get up in the morning and are covered in bugs. We don't want that, but wrapping them up, you don't get the airflow, but you don't get the bugs either, and they're nice and warm in the morning. Side note, anyway. Uh, and then, yeah, I've got obviously got lights. I've got some batteries uh, for charging an iPod, uh, like a little power bank. And, yeah, pretty minimal gear, really. Like, I don't take a change of clothes to wear when I'm biking. I wear the same clothes the whole time. I absolutely stink by the end of it. Um, but, yeah, when I pull into camp, take off the old clothes or my used my day clothes, wrap them up, put them in my sleeping bag underneath my feet, 
to keep them warm and to keep a little bit more insulation under my feet. I'll put a, a pair of boxes on that I that I take, merino boxes, and I'll sleep in them. Maybe put some socks on, depending how cold it is. Thermal, down jacket, balaclava, get into my sleeping bag, uh, and off to sleep. So other than the clothes I'm wearing and my sleeping clothes, that's that's the majority, like the bulk of the gear that I carry. And then it's just little bits and pieces and, and on top of that. But you want to be as light as possible, as light as possible, with also taking into account what the weather conditions are going to be. So people always say they pack for their fears. Like you're always a little bit worried about what the weather's going to do. So you, oh, I'll, I'll take an extra pair of gloves or an extra pair of socks. And, and it's really easy just to end up with a lot of stuff. And I'm guilty of that as well. Like I always look at my stuff. And people ask me, how much does that weigh? Like, what's your? And I don't, I don't know. I, I've never weighed it because I, I don't want to know how much it weighs because it's too much. That's the answer. How much does it weigh? Too much because it's just heavy. And if you've got that number in your head, then it's just wearing away at you. It's just like, oh, I don't, I don't want to know how much it weighs. No, and I guess as soon as you know how much it weighs, there's always a strive to, oh, I could make it a couple of grams lighter by getting a different pair of socks or a different jacket or a different sleeping bag and, and all of a sudden you're forking out a whole bunch of money just to skimp on a little bit of gear. Yeah, big time. And I've, I've ridden with a couple of guys uh, in different events, bikepacking events, and they'll pull out this jacket and they'll tell you exactly how heavy it is. And I'm just like, whoa, this is next level. And they literally have a spreadsheet <laughs> how much each piece of gear weighs. And they're trading in and out different bits of gear to keep their weight down. Phenomenal, and and they are really, really good bike packers. But for me, I kind of just use what I've got available. Like I don't want to go and fork out a bunch of money for for different stuff. And the the number one thing I look for in gear, and this is just across the board in general, is durability. Like I'd rather a slightly heavier piece of kit, but you know that's going to last, you know a couple of years versus a super lightweight, um, you know, the latest Gucci piece of kit that, you know, is only going to last a couple of couple of months because it gets worn out. To be fair, I'm pretty hard on gear. <laughs> so I do I do uh, do like it to last for sure. Yeah, I suspect wearing the same chamois for four or five days for 20 hours a day is probably not within the manufacturing guidelines. <laughs> when I uh, did the... Tour of Aotearoa, which is uh, 3,000 kilometres, Cape Rang and a bluff. I got this pretty much brand new pair of shorts from Ground Effect, um, Christchurch-based company that does a lot of great mountain biking uh, gear, and wore them, and the chamois started to come to pieces, kind of kind of where your sit bone is, just from <laughs> wearing it. And that was for like 11 days I wore those shorts, 11 days in a row. And I was like... I'll give it a go. So I emailed them a photo of this worn-out hole after the event and sort of said, well, this doesn't doesn't look like it held up too well to, you know, 11 days of cycling. Just sort of almost been a little cheeky more than anything because they were like, oh, I think like a couple of hundred dollars for this pair of shorts. And I was like, oh, I'd be kind of gutted that they're worn out. And they uh, they said, oh, did that, you know, was it rubbing on one of your saddlebags or anything? I was like, no, nah, no, nah. it's like underneath the sit bone yada 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 next day or two days later free pair of shorts to replace those ones i was just like wow that there is amazing in terms of you know 
standing behind their product. And that, they're the same shorts I wear all the time now for bike backing because they're, they're super solid shorts. And, um, you know, I've, uh, I've worn the same pair for ages. Yeah. And you hear a lot of, a lot of people, especially in those bike packing circles, whether they be, you know, sort of weekend warriors or doing the extent that you do, um, do rave about that grand effects gear. Um, I have no it. connection with them whatsoever, apart from no. I buy their stuff at full price. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So you're got your gear sorted. Um, you guys, you have GPS trackers with you that they provide. Do they need charging, or do they run the whole time just out? Yeah, little spot trackers. They they run on four AAA batteries, like the real expensive. Uh, uh, I don't know what like are they lithium ions or something like that. Uh, they come with the batteries, and uh, they they will last. I I think about four or five days or five or six days. Um, and so, yeah, you don't need to charge those. If, uh, like in the Tour of Aotearoa, where it was 11 days, I had to replace my batteries partway through that uh, on the spot tracker. But uh, other than that, they just sort of tick away doing their thing without you really knowing and turn them off at night time, turn them back on in the morning, save a bit of battery power that way. But, yeah, no, they don't need don't need charging. No. But how do you charge your lights? And I've, I've seen a few photos of people, do, you know, they sort of going through multiple nights. I know my set of lights that I've got wouldn't last more than one night of riding. Yeah, uh, some guys run like a dynamo hub. So it's literally like a hub that you fit on your front wheel that creates electricity mm. by spinning around. And um, that's a great way of doing it because then you've uh, literally got unlimited power and you can, you know, get a bloody Bluetooth speaker and just jam all night long with your tunes if you wanted to, uh, charge multiple lights, that sort of jazz. I don't have one of those. Um, just the the cost, I guess, for forking out. I didn't want to fork out that much money for doing a you know bike packing event every once or twice a year. And so I used to run just like a standard headlamp that would run on AA batteries or AAA batteries, and I'd have one on my helmet, one on my handlebars, and they didn't really kick out too much light. But it was really good because once the batteries ran out, you can always get more at petrol stations along the way. They don't weigh too much. Since that, I've gone to just standard mountain bike lights with like the full-on brick battery, and I take two batteries, and that gets me through my four nights, okay. four nights of riding. So I usually run them on low, uh, which is which is kind of all you need, and you're kind of only riding for three or four hours a night, and normally yeah, you get I can get sort of four nights um, out of those two batteries, but heavy like it's not a good way of doing it but i think people often get caught up in oh what you know what lights am i going to get dynamo hub and then all of a sudden you're sort of three or four grand into it just for your lighting system whereas it's just like i've just you sort of use what i've got again that sort of philosophy that i kind of like go out to the garage right this is what i've got this is what i'm going to use let's go yeah nice nice and how do you choose where you sleep? So you've obviously got a sort of a minimum, you know, four hours to sleep a night time. Um, mm. And I know you, you tend to only use four hours and maybe one minute of that time. Um, how do you pick a, a sleeping spot or do you sort of have a predetermined, I'm going to roughly try and sleep at this town or at this spot along the way? 
Yeah, so I, I tend to use uh, three hours and 30 minutes of that time for sleeping and then 15 minutes to uh, get to sleep in, in the, at night and then 15 minutes to pack up in the morning. Um, but yes and no. Like normally I'll have a time of the night that I want to ride to and I'll ride to that time and then just sleep wherever I am uh, and, you know, the side of the road essentially. Uh, or in, in, you know, just off the, off the road under a tree or, or whatever it might be. And the GSB this year, um, I had a couple of places in mind because I knew the course. I'd done it before. And I had a little bit of a plan in, in place about how I wanted the uh, ride to unfold. And so I, I sort of pushed on to a couple of places a couple of nights to, to do that. But, I mean, I've slept in all sorts of places. Like literally just on the side of the road in the long grass is often the most comfiest because you've got this nice padding that you lay down on with the, you know, with the grass and it's, it's just super nice and cosy. And usually the places that we're riding, there's not any traffic, especially not at that time in the morning. So people are always sort of a bit worried, oh, you know, what if the car comes past? It's like, oh, they're not going to see you in the side of the grass there anyway. And it's very uncommon for cars to come past. I've slept in and under wool sheds, like shearing sheds. Uh, and I, I did that in, in this year's event as well. And like in abandoned houses sometimes uh, that were like out the back. And it was like a horror scene of, uh, and I was convinced I was going to get murdered in the night of, you know, this rattly old house in the wind. And I'll often find places to sleep undercover if it's pouring down rain. Uh, like under a tree or in an abandoned house or in a wool shed or a hay shed. Otherwise, I usually just crash on the side of the road and sleep in the grass. You but find... there's, there's not a lot of thought goes into it, to be fair. No. <laughs> no, I guess if you've got a predetermined time, it's a wee bit easier just to, to keep that as the plan as opposed to stopping early or later because you found somewhere. To... Yeah, absolutely. And if it was like a really terrible, terrible night, and, uh, you know, and it's a couple, like, it's, let's say it's 12 o'clock, because I often try and finish around 2 or 3 o'clock um, at night and, and sleep then. Like, let's say it was 11 or 12, and it was a really terrible night, and there was a really good place to sleep, good shelter, whatever it might be. I, I potentially would sleep there, sleep my four hours, and then, and then get up in four hours' time and, and go from there. But that 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 has its, uh, its heart in its own respect, that, because then you're getting up, in the middle of the night mm. uh, and then riding again in the dark and that can be mentally quite hard as well. Whereas if you sleep a little bit later, um, it can be a little bit colder during that later part of the, that early morning. So it can be good to sleep earlier, but then you get up and it's kind of becoming light and that sort of wakes you up, it lifts your spirits a little bit and um, then you're riding in the daylight light again rather than doing another night shift on the lights for, you know, for another yep. couple of hours. Yeah, but people can sleep, they can, you can sleep wherever you like, can't you? You can check into a hotel, hotel, campground. Oh, um, absolutely, you yeah. can do that. Um, and a lot of people do. They go from yep. town to town, they sort of plan their ride to go from this town to that town, they'll book a motel in, in advance or a camping ground or whatever it might be. And, like, don't get me wrong, you don't have to sleep for four hours. You can sleep for more than that. There's people that go out and just ride daylight to daylight and, you know, and then take the whole whole night to sleep. Um, but for, for me and what I'm sort of there to do and yeah. to push myself, I want to sort of make make the most of the riding time. Yeah. 
And if there was no sleep, uh, sort of enforced sleep stuff, I'd sleep less than that some of the time and, and sort of push on. Yep. So I guess given then, you know, you're kind of in the performance side of, of bikepacking, um, do you have a, a strict performance-based diet along the way? Or is it whatever you, whatever you can get your hands on goes in the mouth? Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, it's, I guess it's eat anything and everything, but I do put some thought in behind it, I guess. Uh, and so I'll buy, well, because after your first couple of hours, you can't really uh, carry any of your food efficiently. Like, if you were to start with all of the food that you're going to finish with, your bike would be so heavy just with everything. Or you'd have to start hauling, you know, dehydrated meals around and then, you know, a cooker to cook them up and, and that sort of thing. So I'll just buy, I'll, I won't take any any cooking utensils or pots or cookers or anything. I'll just buy everything at the shops along the way. So I sort of categorize my food into uh, like meals in terms of, um, what, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner and have, have something kind of big at and around those times somewhere. And the something big is usually like a pie or a sandwich normally because they're pretty available. You can get them anywhere. And then fill in the gaps between those times with uh, other stuff such as cookie times, muesli bars, lollies, um, muffins, whatever whatever it might be. But it's essentially just buying what you can get at the petrol station is essentially what I take. Um, so I'll roll into a petrol station. I'll go and buy two pies, one to eat now, one to eat later. Um, pies are really good. And if, you, if you're listening in America, you'll be thinking fruit pies, but these are meat pies uh, with, you know, meat in it. And in New Zealand, at least, they're, they're often packaged, depending on what ones you buy, Irvine's pies are the best because they're packaged in a plastic wrapper. You can chuck that thing in your back pocket, really pro tip here, keeps you warm if it's a cold day, like a little heater. Um, but then it doesn't matter if that thing cools down and you eat it in 12 hours' time for breakfast the next morning, it's still going to be good. Like you ha- If you've got a, a pie that's in a, a paper bag and you chuck it in your back pocket, the paper gets all destroyed or it gets wet, it gets all sweaty, uh, and it's just a big mess. But... Irvine's pies in the plastic, boom, a bomb proof. And so I'll, I'll take, buy two pies straight up, probably a couple of cookie times, bag of gummy type lollies, uh, and some sort of drink, probably some sort of fizzy drink, whether it be a Coke or LMP or Sprite, just depending on, on the taste, taste preference at the time. I'll usually buy like a 1.5 litre of that, fill up my drink bottles with that. And so essentially... You're just riding all day, just eating crap the whole time. Um, and that pretty much sums it up. I, I don't usually sit down anywhere to eat a meal. Okay. Like I'll just go buy and buy and leave straight away. So I want to eat on the bike. Um, if you if you come across any fast food places, they're, um, they're fair game as well. But in central Otago, there's, there's not a lot to be had in that department. No, there's not. I think... I think your interpretation of a good pie after 12 hours sitting in your back pocket is, is probably not quite what everyone else might consider to be a good pie. <laughs> oh, mate, some it's nasty. I'm not going to lie to you. 
the state of some and like sandwiches are really good right like i i really like eating sandwiches you've got to be careful with sandwiches i i think because you got to see what's in them if it's a chicken sandwich it's probably not even good to eat that if it's like lunchtime at the place and you're going to eat it straight away because who knows how long it's been sitting in the cabinet you take that thing and you shuck it in your pocket and you take it with you and it's baking in the sun for who knows how long and then you start to eat it you're gonna have real problems and I had a I had real bad experience with a chicken wrap uh, on the tour of Aotearoa and got I think what I got food poisoning from that. So I won't go near anything chicken on on the ride. I won't go anything near anything with egg in it either. Same sort of thing. You don't know how long it's been there. You start eating something with egg and oh, it's not going to be good for the guts. Your stomach's pretty. Uh, volatile let's say when you're riding your bike for 20 hours at a time at the best of times so i I tend to avoid anything um and if you don't have anything with egg in it you're probably not going to have anything with ham in it because ham sandwiches (laughs) normally always have egg in them for whatever reason and so it sort of leaves you with the option of corned beef sandwiches they're great and i'll grab corned beef sandwiches wherever i can but a lot of places don't have them. It's either egg and something or chicken and something, and I won't I won't touch either of those. But a mince pie, can't beat it. <laughs> but you you'll pull sandwiches out of your pocket that have uh, that or, or your backpack that have been in there for you know squished in there for ten hours, and they're just like the nicest thing you've ever eaten in your life. And the same thing with like a cold pie uh, at three o'clock in the morning. It's just like ah, uh, it's great. <laughs> I'll, try, I'll take your word for it for now. Yeah, absolutely. So, how did this year go then? Talk us yes, through this year this, I don't know. This year was interesting. It was interesting. I'd, I'd done this course before. This was actually in 2014 when I did my first ever GSB. This was the same course as that one. And I sort of had a bit of a plan in mind about how I wanted to go and I was pretty confident that, you know, if I if everything went really well, I'd be able to push it out within sort of four days, four and a bit. So you'd be out there for three nights. And if I, th- I thought if I had a really good ride and everything went well, I'd, I'd be kind of able to do that. So I went into it with uh, this expectation that I was going to push myself really, really hard and, and hopefully sort of achieve this idea that I had in mind. And there were... There were three guys um, as well. Richard Dunnett, who's absolute legend on a bike, won uh, the he's like the UK World. Uh, oh, sorry, not the UK World. He's a UK 24-hour mountain bike champion. Done a heap of riding. He's done the, um, the Tour of Aotearoa as well. Done the Great uh, Great Divide. So really awesome bike back, and I was really keen to see how he was going to go and how he was going to tackle it. And there was another couple of guys, Ben Lukes, who's guy from Queenstown, likes to smash it. And then uh, Grant Guys as well, who has sort of come from uh, uh, ultra-marathon running background to bikepacking. And uh, I knew that he would have a big engine as well. So it started, and they all shot off the front, like, super hard. And I was sort of riding with a couple of them to start with, or Richard was just off the front from the start, just boom. We were like, whoa, that's crazy. He's either going to blow up or he's just going to smash it. Turns out he smashed it. And uh, the other two guys, they, they were chasing him pretty hard. And I stayed with them for uh, oh, the first 
hour maybe and then it was just this pace is too hot for me and so I, I dialed it back and just got settled into my own rhythm and what sort of pushing through and it's interesting in bike packing you'll it, it, the difference between a really fast rider and, a, and, a, and an average kind of rider a lot of the difference gets taken out of it if you can be efficient with what you're doing so I'd often come into a town and uh, Grant would be there getting getting food and just leaving, but he'd been quite far ahead of me. I'd roll in, grab my stuff really quick, and I'd with Ben, for example, at this stage, I would leave. Ben would still be getting his food, and Grant would just be up the road a little bit. And just by being quite efficient in the shop and grabbing what you need and not faffing around, you're you're able to save a lot of time. And and that's kind of uh, a big tactic of mine is just relentless forward momentum, just being super efficient with what you're doing, always moving forward, being stopped as, as minimally as possible. And so at the end of the first day, everyone sort of came into around St. Bathin's area around about 12 o'clock, so about midnight, and everyone started to pull off the road and start to sleep around that area. And... I knew the next day you have to catch the Earnslaw across, which is the boat from Queenstown over to Walter Peak. So you've got to catch this ferry essentially at a certain time. And I knew that it was kind of going to be pretty tight to catch this ferry. And so what I wanted to do is push a little bit further on the first day to make the second day a little bit more manageable or achievable. Um, and so they all stopped to sleep and I kept charging on for another couple of hours to get partway through Thompson's Gorge, which is a sort of pretty, uh, not a real rough section, but it's a kind of a key section of, of, of the ride. If, if you mention Thompson's Gorge to anyone, uh, sort of conjures up, you know, big endless hills and wind and, and nastiness. And anyway, I, I was like, there's a, I knew there was a, a wool shed down in Thompson's Gorge. That, I've, that I'd stayed in previous on previous uh, GSB, so I thought, well, if I can get there, it's given me a good, the next day the push to the ferry should be a little easier. And as I was going, it just got super windy, and I just spent so much time getting there. I was like, oh, I'll completely bugger this up. I'm going to get there, and then the other guys are going to wake up, essentially, when I arrive, and then come steaming past, and I'll never see them again. But as it turns out, I got to the woolshed, slept, woke up in the morning, came out, got all my gear together, was walking back to the to the road where we were riding, and all of a sudden, Grant and Ben come down the hill past the woolshed just as I was starting, so it was perfect timing. And then I was able to hook on with those guys and kind of ride with them. Uh, Richard had shot the gap already, and he was just a, not too far up the road, about 45 minutes to an hour ahead. And for the rest of that day, me and Grant were chasing Richard uh, really hard. He was just about an hour ahead of us the whole way. We could never sort of pull him back. As we came into Lake Harwear, like it was just a howling headwind, like so strong. Like we took about two hours to do 30Ks. Like it was just a block headwind the whole way. And I could just see the time tacking away to catch the Earnslaw. I was like, oh, we're not going to make it. It's like, come on and no matter what you do there's this block headwind the whole way we finally got that behind us it was me and grant we were riding pretty well sort of within sight of each other sort of yo-yoing back and forth a little bit we managed to push up over the crown range down into queenstown and we're like shit maybe we can make 
the boat. Like we'd kind of written it off a little bit, but maybe we can make the last sailing. We had to be there by, I think it was five o'clock or six o'clock, something like that. And it was going to be really tight. Last 10 Ks, we were just like, just drilling it to get there on time. And we pulled up, we came around the corner and the Ernst was just pulling in into its berth there. And we got to the ticket office, like we'd missed the time, like that you had to, buy your tickets 15 minutes beforehand or whatever would miss the time that you could actually buy your tickets so we like pleaded with the person behind the desk that we could have a ticket onto the boat and they said yes and we're like oh brilliant that was the last ferry across the the lake that day and so if you arrived after that you couldn't catch the ferry you'd have to wait for the next one the next morning or pay i think it was like 300 dollars for a water taxi to get yourself across and so Richard must have got the boat just before us, so he was already over the other side. So we got the Ernslaw across, which was fantastic, and then uh, rode out through Walter Peak Station down into Southland. And we ended up getting down into Mossburn, and I slept underneath these trees um, in, in Mossburn. Next morning, Grant, Grant had stayed there as well, and we sort of came across each other again the next morning. And... As we were riding down through Southland towards Garston, I had such terrible um, stomach problems. It's like really, really bad reflux, I think just from smashing so much sugary stuff the day before while we were putting the hammer down to try and catch the ferry. And I was, I was having a real bad time of it. And I was really gutted because I hadn't taken my uh, like quickies, the like anti-reflux pills that I usually carry because with the amount of food that you're shoving in your mouth, it's really common to get, you know, acid reflux and like really badly. So here I was like pretty much vomiting in my mouth every, you know, couple of minutes and I ended up pulling into a little town and having some, some sit down time, which I hardly ever do, like sitting on the couch in this cafe, just like sipping chocolate milk and eating ice cream to try and settle my stomach down and grant and richard were way ahead of me by the say oh i'm never going to see them again like you know so i got back on the road and started chugging away again and we were pushing up over into the nevis valley and as we went up over into the nevis i was coming down the other side and i come around the corner and there's grant laying down on the ground uh, vomiting in the fetal position on the side of the road. <laughs> and I was like, oh, mate, what's wrong? <laughs> and and he was having all sorts of problems, obviously, uh, with vomiting. And I was like, geez, like, there's no cell phone reception. You're going to have to go three hours in either direction, essentially, to get cell phone coverage. And so I uh, I said, what, what can I do for you, mate? Like, can I help you in any way? And he's like, oh, can you, can you call this person when you get cell phone reception to come pick me up? And, yeah, I was like, yeah, you've got everything you need. And I left him in the air in the, in the sun, you know, vomiting and <laughs> trying to look after him. He was in such a bad way. And so I kept chugging on, came across some people on four-wheel drive and said, there's a, there's a guy down the road. He's not looking good, you know. See if he needs any help. You might be able to take him out. But uh, ended up getting over into Alexandra and sort of pushing through there and into my third night at that stage and was I was feeling pretty good and kind of still felt that I was kind of within striking distance to sort of make the ride that I'd wanted to happen 
happen. And then on the last sort of day and a half, everything sort of started to unravel a little bit. And um, and I ended up sort of cooking myself a little bit and, and not sort of making it happen. Um, but yeah, generally, like it, it went really well, apart from the sort of one 12-hour period where everything fell to pieces for me. And, and so I was kind of disappointed that that happened. And upon reflection, we can talk about it, about how that how that all happened so overall great and i love going out there and sort of pushing it and and doing and that's exactly what i did but then there was like this one little part that was kind of a bit disappointed in yeah and i guess over what 90 90 hours to have have one part that didn't go quite as planned this is not a bad sort of stat um but it also shows you how on these big sort of multi-day stages all it takes is one thing like you know not taking your cookies oh, yeah. uh, and it can unravel you for 12 hours which you know is longer than most normal races are let alone the fact that there's smack bang in the middle of a, a 90 hour mission mm, yeah absolutely so how do you find the the concept of i guess being in a in a race type of setting but it's not actually a race there's no prize money there's no medal there's no you must get to the finish line first type of drive from external um, factors, but how do you how do you find the the fact that it, you're still racing people, um, but there's no reward for that? Yeah, I mean it's oh, it's an interesting one. Like there's you're not even racing other people. Like, that's the funny thing. There's other people there, uh, and someone gets to the finish line first, but it doesn't really mean anything. Obviously, there's a little bit of kudos involved in terms of. Uh, you know, if you, if you get, not even if you get to there first, like just getting to the finish line in itself is such an achievement. And I, like, if you got something for getting to the finish line, I don't think it would make it any more rewarding, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So the feeling of getting to the finish line of the GSB, for example, and other bikepacking events after however many hours, in this case, like 95 hours of working uh, above and beyond your your capacity and and getting to the finish line, there's nothing like it, like zero, nothing. And if you got given a medal, it would <laughs> it wouldn't make it any any more special. No. Right? And if like for example, on the tour of Aotearoa now, you get a finishers medal. There's a cafe down there or something can you go to and you get this medal saying that you've done it. The first time I did it, was, which was the first ever time it was run, that never happened. And I know there were some people that did the first one and then these medals came out in subsequent years and they were like throwing up a stink about, wait a minute, what's going on? We, we want our medal, we've done it. And like for me, it, it, like, it makes absolutely no difference like i i don't do it for for any of that um having other people there pushing themselves as hard as they can around you is inspiring more than a competitive thing um seeing them push themselves and uh and it helps you bring out the best of yourself as well and so you'll often be riding with people but you're not necessarily competing against them. 
but it helps you with a little bit of sense of urgency, right? So mm. you're thinking, oh, where are they at, and then that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, it's just uh, everyone turns up and sort of just, you know, does does their own thing essentially. Um, and so yeah, it's it's an interesting concept. Like it's uh, I, I like it to the the human race, right? So whatever you do, it's a race because it's the human race. And and like I I would go out and 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 do you know like a 400k ride by myself and getting to the end of that is you know you don't get anything and people are like what you just went and rode you know three or four hundred k's and what did you get oh, my, nothing <laughs> do you know what i mean and it's kind of that for me at least that's not what it's about and that's potentially why there's not a huge following of a of bikepacking if you turn up to a local 10k race that costs fifty dollars to enter, uh, and you run 10k's and then get given a medal at the end, and there's like three or four hundred people turn up to this thing to run 10k's, and potentially that's a, a little bit of a show of of that sort of external motivation or that challenge, and and not saying that 10 10k challenge is not you know not a challenge for everybody, uh, for some people for sure, but for me. It's, it has nothing to do with getting a medal. It has nothing to do with getting a placing. Um, everything that happens sort of happens, uh, and this kind of sounds a little bit crazy now that I'm sort of verbalizing it. It's, it happens in my <laughs> happens in my head, <laughs> and um, and I I don't think you know an, an official race would change any of that in any in any way whatsoever. And it's quite hard to explain if you haven't haven't done it or been there and maybe you can get a little bit of sense of that from other other races or other events that you've done yourself but i i don't think there would be enough prize money for people to do this sort of thing like if you were motivated solely on an external thing about winning something or getting something i don't think there'd be enough that would make people do it uh, that didn't want to do it. So I think there's just so much of this internal drive to sort of discover a little bit more about what you're capable of or kind of liken it. It's, it's kind of like it compresses life a little bit into into a, like a really intense experience. What you experience over, you know, that 95 hours is, is kind of like three or four years worth of emotion or pain or experience all into that sort of really um, short time frame, and it's quite phenomenal. And I know that we're getting a little bit short on time here because I bloody rabbit on about who knows what. But maybe what we can do is in the next episode, in another episode, sort of talk a little bit uh, more around that concept and then also that sort of 12-hour period that I had there where everything sort of came, started to unravel for me. And it was really interesting for me. I was almost detached from myself and I could see it happening, but I couldn't stop it. Mm. And that, for me, that made it extremely frustrating or I was disappointed in myself because um, I like to think that I've got a pretty good handle on that sort of thing and all the stuff I bang on about with the harden up principles and that sort of thing is... When I go and do these events, it's almost in kind of like a little bit of a a laboratory, if you like, of 
physically doing these things that I talk so much about and then watching this happen in front of my own eyes or within myself, I was like, right, I've got some work to do. Yes, and that, <clears throat> I think that, that would be a nice sort of episode in itself, um, sort of delving into that 12-hour period and, and sort of breaking it down as to what, what happened um, and mm. how you pulled yourself out of it. Because to be halfway, well, not quite halfway through, maybe two-thirds of the way through, and to have this chunk of time that things went pretty shit, to, and then to pull yourself out of it to carry on for another 20 hours or whatever it would be, um, it's pretty phenomenal. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. We can talk about that, um, and hopefully, yeah, some people can take something from it for themselves, even. Mm, absolutely. So, and in, in that case, then what's what's next um, as a way to to wrap this up? Uh, I don't have anything yet. It's been uh, three months, has it? No, yeah. it can't have been three months. January, April, February, April first, <laughs> almost three months, and I haven't ridden my bike at all. <laughs> like it's still sitting in the in the garage. I just finished cleaning up my gear the other day from the ride. Uh, I have no desire to get back on my bike anytime soon. And I guess that's the difference between when you do something like this. If it was a competitive thing and there was another one coming up, you'd feel this pressure to get ready for another one. But mm. I've kind of ticked a lot of boxes, and it kind of I'm done for a little while now. Um, and so yeah, at the moment it's just uh, building building the body back a little bit because it does get pretty beaten up. So I've been doing lots of gym work, uh, building back into running, cross-country ski season's just around the corner. Uh, so there's there's plenty on, but there's nothing specific. Nice. Sounds like a, sounds like a conversation in itself, and, and I know you're not the only one that I've spoken to that will do an event like that or a, a, a long mission like this and then won't touch their, their bike, running shoes, whatever it mm. might be. Um, for a good three or four months afterwards um, and for me that sounds quite weird because I'm like well you're doing the sport you love and you're doing these events that then make you not want to do what you love for, for three or four months but um, I think that in itself is a is a nice mental um, question to raise yeah absolutely let's put some thought into that for next time as well sounds good awesome guys thanks for joining us uh, we look forward to Catching up with you guys next time. So until next time, get out there and train hard. But most importantly, train smart and don't do bike packing events because they don't sound very smart after I've been talking about them for the last hour. See you later. <laughs>